Let's consider God's word together. I want to ask that you follow along. Uh, and if you don't have a, a Bible, the Pew Bible is page 985. You're going to need it because we're going to look at Isaiah 53 and 54. It's Pew Bible, page 985. Um, you can follow along in your, your Bible that you brought. But it's important that we're looking at the word because there's just so much here. Um, I've been reading through Isaiah and sometimes you get to a passage and you're like, I just know there's gold here, but I just got to keep digging because I, I, I'm still just trying to scratch the surface of the implications of Isaiah 54, 55. There's just wonderful, wonderful gospel truths that are here, and I'm still discovering them. So let's pray that the Lord would open up this text to us uh, as we look at his word. I'm just going to read... Um, I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and if you're thinking through an outline, here's two things, grieving wife, glorious husband. The first four verses is all about a grieving wife who is Israel, and verses 5 to 10 is a glorious husband who's Jesus. Think about that. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not. For you, will, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you, will not, for you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. For the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your, is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he's called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted, grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with everlasting compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, <clears throat> but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we believe. Would you help our unbelief? If we really believe this text, our lives would be turned radically upside down. And we pray that they would be and that we would be set free in knowing we have been this loved. Thank you, Lord. We ask that you would open our eyes now, that we would see and believe. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, what is the context of Isaiah 54? Everybody knows Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the most famous chapter in Isaiah, one of the fam most famous chapters in the Bible, because it's one of the clearest prophecies that we have of Jesus the Messiah 
who is predicted hundreds of years in advance, who's going to come and atone for our sins and make us right with God by his sacrificial death. There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, and we're not going to go into each of those, but if you want to read them on your own, they're Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. And each servant song gives us a snapshot of the Messiah, a portrait. The 53 is like extra megapixels. It tells us graphically about the servant who's the suffering servant. We know from Acts 8 that we just read this morning, when the, when the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip, who is this? Who is this about? And you remember Philip told him the good news from this passage of Isaiah 53, that this is Jesus. Isaiah 53 is the gospel. And I think it's helpful just to, as you go back over Isaiah 53 for a minute, if you look back, hopefully you've got your text there in front of you. I think it's important to put your name in this text. What I mean by that is you read the text and sometimes we think, well, this is for everybody else but me. It's for us individually as believers. So put your name in it. Wounded for Charlie Bale's transgressions. Verse 5. He was crushed for Charlie Bale's iniquities. Upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought Charlie Bale peace. Put your name in it. And by his stripes, Charlie Bale is healed. I, like a sheep, have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. And the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of Charlie Bale. Put your name in it. It's the truth. Keep going. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep before a shear is its silence. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for our generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of, put your name in it. You see, this is what Jesus has done. This is the gospel. And there's something about this text because so much of Isaiah has been giving all this bad news. Bad news. You're going into captivity. You're going into captivity. Israel's gone astray. I mean, the book begins with a very heavy indictment of calling them. Basically, the animals know their master, but you don't even know your master. The animals know more about God than you. And you, you, Israel continues to go off into idolatry. And yet there's this, God intervenes. He sends his son, the servant. The suffering servant is Jesus. And as we come to the table this morning, I mean, I don't have time to, wish I could just, we could stay here for hours, but I want you to meditate on some of these verses Because Isaiah 54 and 55 is the gospel going down now into the heart. You know, think of it like the the gospel grenade, and you just let the pin go, and it begins to explode into your life. And as it explodes into your life, 54 and 55 are just rippling out the implications of what the gospel, how it's going to explode. And it's going to be wide, and it's going to be deep. It's wide, it's going to go to the ends of the earth. 
It's deep. It's going to deal with your shame. It's going to deal with your fear. It's going to cause you to sing. Not just sing, but break forth. And not just break forth, but to cry out. There's nothing quiet about verse 1, is there? Three imperatives. The people that, are you kidding me? What's there to sing about? What is there to get excited about? We are embarrassed. We are humiliated. We are ridiculed. We have gone into bondage. We have been taken away by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and taken into deportation. There is nothing to to rejoice about. And telling a barren woman to rejoice and to sing is cruelty unless there's good news here. Something happens massively when you get to Isaiah 52, verse 13. When that servant comes and he steps in to do what we can't do, that's the gospel. And when we get this, it begins to to explode into our lives. Tim Keller puts it like this. He has a way of expounding these, these truths that are helpful. So listen carefully. He says, the biblical God, the God of the gospel, the God of Isaiah, the God of the African eunuch, is infinitely holy and infinitely loving, infinitely loving, and that's the reason God's grace is costly. It's so costly, that's why it's so moving. If your God doesn't have to come and die for you or sacrifice for you, there's no electricity in that God. There's nothing about that God that's going to move you to tears or cause you to worship him. He's just the unmoved mover who's unfeeling and untouched, and that's a bunch of Aristotle. There's nothing to live for in that if that's your God. There's nothing that's ever going to move you to tears, nothing going to change your life, nothing going to change your course in life. But when you realize that this this grace is infinitely holy, infinitely loving God. He says, in other words, God's grace is infinitely costly. It melts your heart when you realize God was so holy that he couldn't shrug evil off. But he was so loving, he couldn't just punish us for it. Now, until you're humbled down into the dust because he's so holy that he had to die for you and not until you're so affirmed and valued to the sky because he loves you so much he was glad to die for you, will you be humbled out of the pride that makes you look down on other people and affirmed out of the self-hatred that makes you look down at yourself all at the same time? In other words, only when you see what it costs God to remove your sin will you finally have the death, death of all inferiority and the death of all superiority and you'll be able to have freedom, the restructured identity that no one else has. That's the gospel. So Isaiah 53 is the gospel and Isaiah 54 and 55 is the impact of the gospel. It's the drinking in of the restoration What does this mean? It's the grenade of the gospel that explodes upon a human heart. And you take extreme measures when you let go of a grenade. You're dealing with an enemy. And the enemy is ourselves and our sins. And you're talking about a people here that are being described as full of fears in verse 4. Ashamed, confounded, disgraced. Reproach. And these are metaphors, the two metaphors of barrenness and widowhood is this imagery of, of shame. And often, what keeps us from God is our shame. And if we're honest, even still, it's usually shame from sexual sin, fornication, 
homosexuality, adultery. And then sometimes this shame wasn't our fault. Molested, abused, raped. Isaiah 54, 5 has probably done more to change people's lives, particularly women in a bad marriage or single and struggling to realize that the maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. That's like the best news in in the whole world. If you get that, you'll be a great spouse on earth when you realize there's there's another spouse that this is to be about. And so God calls his people here to sing, to break forth into singing and cry aloud. Three imperatives. The idea here is to rejoice with all your being. When the gospel, got, when the gospel dots connect the electricity of the gospel by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of man, works in the heart in such a way that the natural response is singing. When Jesus approached the woman at the well, there's a lot of things he said to her, but he said the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What did you come here this morning for? The Father is seeking worshipers. Jesus didn't say the Father is seeking converts or disciples or followers, as good and true as those are. The Father is seeking worshipers. And when the pen is pulled and the gospel is exploding, meaning you just believe it. I believe that he did that for me. My name was written on him. And he took my sin and went to the cross. He was the suffering servant for me. When that happens... Then we sing. We cry out. When a baby is born, the next thing that happens is the baby begins to what? Cry. (laughs) And they call that the cry of life. Well, when a Christian is converted, when a sinner is converted to Jesus, singing is the reality of new life birthed by the Spirit of God. Now, the language in Isaiah 54 is difficult. I've been thinking about this a lot this week and even for a few weeks. Here's what's going on here. He's calling the barren woman to sing, one who's not been in labor, and yet she has no children of her own. She's being promised children that will be more than those around her who are married. So what in the world is he talking about? And in that culture, to command a barren woman to sing, as I already said, would be torture. Because for a woman to be barren in that culture, ancient Near Eastern culture at that time, it was horrific. Because the society absolutely depended on children. Tim Keller has a funny illustration about, you know, imagine the ladies around the well. And they're having a conversation and one lady says to another, you know, I think I I really don't want to have many children. I just want to have like one or two. I don't want to have any. How do you think that would have gone with the other ladies at the well? (laughs) in ancient Near Eastern culture. Are you crazy? Are you going to kill us all? I mean, you're going to need about eight of them just to, just to provide for you 
And, and then they're needed to carry on the family line. They're going to care for you when you get old. But most of all, they've got to help us fight the battles for, in, for, for invaders that will come. We need to have a big army. And the only way we're going to have a big army is producing big family. And if you want to have one or two, you are not contributing to the good of society. So in the ancient Near Eastern culture at that time, children for a woman was everything. So when Rachel cries out, give me children or I die to her husband, she meant it. Because it was everything to her. And Leah's just popping out the boys like it's going out of style. But for Rachel, give me children or I die. And so when she has another, when she has a first child, she names him, give me another one. Give me another. His name was Joseph. And it means made a Lord out of another. Like, hurry up, Lord, I need another one. And it killed her with the next one. You see, they elevated it for the ladies where it becomes an idol. Their whole life, their whole idea, everything is wrapped around children. And God's turning this idol structure upside down. And he's calling a barren woman to sing. How can you do that? And so, Isaiah 54, we have a grieving wife meeting a glorious husband because of the gospel. And so the people of God are the barren and widowed grieving wife in the, in the metaphor. The shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood is Israel. And a lot of commentators think that the youth was referring to when they were in bondage to Egypt and the widowhood is referring to the captivity of Babylon. You were betrothed after you came out of Egypt and then you with all of Israel's, all the warnings and love, but there was so much uh, idolatry and warnings about captivity that eventually God sent his people into Babylon. And, and the northern army and the Assyrians, I mean, Isaiah's writing about both, both the Assyrians coming and then the Babylonians in the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And so, and yet in the middle of Isaiah, there's all these calls about judgment and yet God's saying, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. And so the judgment and the experience of captivity in Babylon is being described by Isaiah as barrenness and widowhood. And I'm sure many of these people that went into captivity, they did lose their husbands, and many didn't have children. But the thrust of Isaiah's argument is a metaphor. And so the people are feeling as they've gone into captivity, they're feeling barren. They're feeling like widows. They're feeling like life is over. There is nothing to live for. And so the question is, how can Israel, who's been given over to her sins, taken into captivity, feels terrible shame, embarrassment. It's the end of the theocracy. It's the end of the, in their thinking, the Davidic dynasty and all the promises to David that there's going to be one on the throne forever. Where's that all about, Lord? Like, for all practical purposes, we're done. We're in captivity in Babylon. And they're feeling like Sarah in the tent when the three visitors come. And they say, well, this time next year, you're going to have a child. And what did Sarah do when, when the three visitors came and proclaimed that? And, and Sarah laughed. She thought to herself, yeah, right. Now that I'm old and worn out. And yet a year later, she had a child. God did what he promised. And he's promising here that he's going to do something incredible in the midst of when, things, when, the, when it's the darkest of night. They're in captivity, and God is saying, sing, break forth, and cry out. 
children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. And when you read Galatians 4 at the end, we know that this is talking about something greater than just Israel coming back from captivity, but he's talking about the church. Gentiles and nations and all the ends of the earth. In Galatians 4, Paul says, bing, this is the birth of the church. So how can this be? Well, the answer is in Isaiah 53. And so I think we forget how Isaiah 53 ends. You see, I stopped there when I was reading it. When you think of Isaiah 53, you think of humiliation and death. And then, it, you know, the story ends and, or seemingly seems to end in verse 9, that they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man his death. Although he had done no violence, no deceit in his mouth. There's Jesus in the grave. But keep reading. Look at verse 10 to 12. Look, look there, page 685 in your pew Bible. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Now, he was just in the grave in verse 9. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. How does one who's dead in the grave see his offspring and, prolong his, and have prolonged days and prospering in his hands and he shall see and be satisfied? How can that happen? Resurrection. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And the word strong really means numerous strong. It means it's going to be a multitude of people. So that word strong is just, it's, it's massive amount of people. He didn't just die for a few people. So twice we are sold, told he shall see. Dead people don't see. It's going to prolong his days and it's going to prosper in his hands. And he shall see his offspring. The offspring that Isaiah is calling the people of God to rejoice in and for the barren woman to sing has been purchased by a Messiah. That's where the offspring's coming from. It didn't come from you. It came from the sacrifice of the Messiah who has borne their iniquities, accounted them righteous, and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He's going to see his offspring. And when he returns, he's going to say, here am I and what? And the children you've given me. That's why the barren woman can sing, because it's not coming from her, it's coming from Messiah. Do you see what Isaiah is prophesying? He's bringing Israel back from captivity. They feel hopeless and barren. They feel like life is over, and God is saying, I am just beginning I am doing something glorious. Not am I bringing you back. I am going to bring people back from their sins. You think of John 8 when Jesus talks about being a slave to sin. And you remember what they said to him? The people say, we've never been a slave to anyone. I mean, is that not the most unbelievable statement? In the, in, in, I mean, is that not the, the most amnesia city? Let's see, we got, you were enslaved to Babylon, 
You've been enslaved to the Philistines. You've been enslaved by the Midianites. You've been enslaved by the Syrians. You've been enslaved by the Babylonians. You've been enslaved by the Persians, by the Greeks, and now by Rome while I'm, I'm talking to you. And you say to me, you've never been a slave to anyone? I mean, people will say the most crazy things. There are people here this morning that don't think they're a slave to sin in their natural state. I mean, sometimes it's crazy what people will say to you. And Jesus is saying, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. He came to make a real sacrifice on a real cross for real sin, for real sinners, to give them real salvation, real righteousness, real atonement. Bearing their iniquities. And now Jesus comes and he says, your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He's the God of earth, he's called. And Jesus is the bride. He's laid down his life for his bride, the church. Now let me connect the dots a little bit more. You remember when Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah 6. It says he was seated on a throne, high and lifted up. That's a pretty big term in Isaiah, isn't it? I saw the Lord, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two he flew. And they called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah tells us that that Jesus is glory in John 12. But in case we didn't get that, in Isaiah 57, 15, we are told, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. His name is holy. And he says, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who's contrite and of lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So follow me now. Look back now at how this servant song begins in Isaiah 52, 13. The fourth servant song. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be what? High and lifted up and shall be exalted. Who's the fourth servant song? Jesus. How can this be? How can this be? Well, the answer is in Philippians 2. The whole attitude should be that as, the same as that of Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has what? Highly exalted him. He's the one high and lifted up and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, this has a lot to say about missions, about our lives. You see, God says to Isaiah, to a depressed, to a humiliated people of God who have a sordid past and much shame. And he says, enlarge the place of your tent. The idea here is that job and I don't know why this fell on the women but commentators say that the woman's job was the tent, tent building 
And so even though Israel, when he's writing this to Israel, they're no longer tent dwellers, but they all would have been familiar with the illustration that this was to the ladies. Taking it back to the time of like Sarah and Abraham, but enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your states, your stakes, for you will be spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. The idea is you better make this, this a lot bigger. Stretch out that tent. Lengthen those stakes. And you see, it's because of what God's doing. You see the bookends of the servant's song, that fourth servant song. Listen again or follow along in your pew Bible. 52.14. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. So notice many is twice, verse 14 and 15. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, they shall understand. Well, then you look at the end of the bookends, 53, 11, and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many the bookends is many, 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 many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong or the numerous or the countless strong in numbers because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many. Makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, all throughout the book of Isaiah, God keeps making promises about the nations. And these promises are so much greater than the 42 to 50,000 people that came back from Babylon. That's all that came back. So when you've got these books like Nehemiah and Ezra and Malachi, Haggai, only 42 to 50,000 people came back from captivity. Is that what this is saying? That's it? Because they were thinking, I mean, they, you know, when they built that temple the second time, remember it, the weeping was as loud as the, as the cheering because people could remember, man, this is so much smaller. But God's doing something, just like it was Sarah. Sarah was barren, and yet she bore a child, and, and, and we're still reaping the benefits of, from her came some Messiah. Listen to this theme of nations, of what God is doing, just for a second, Listen. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it, Isaiah 2.2. Isaiah 11.10, in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 42.1, behold my servant who I hold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 49, 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 52, 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Do you believe it? And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. For as the earth sprouts forth its... its Brings forth its sprouts, and a garden causes what it's sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Isaiah 61, 11. And the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming for 
all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Luke, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javon, to the coastlands afar off. They have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. William Carey, the father of modern missions, late 1700s, he was being convicted and convinced that God, that the, that the unreached peoples of the earth needed to hear the gospel. And when he shared it, he heard from one of his his elders and a mentor to him, he told him this, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your aid or mine. That's what we call hyper-Calvinism. That's sad. In 1792, William Carey preached before a gathering of local pastors in Britain and his text was Isaiah 52, or 54, verses 2 and 3. Enlarge the place of thy tent. And the title of his message was this. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Where was that rooted? It was rooted in Isaiah 54, verse 2 and 3. Because the gospel is wide and deep. And it's going to go wide to the ends of the earth. And so he was calling the church to care about the heathen lands around the world. And in 1793, William Carey volunteered himself to go to India. And he left for Calcutta. He labored there for over 40 years. No furlough. He buried his first wife. He buried his second wife. His third wife buried him. He labored for seven years before he ever saw a convert. He lost an unbelievable amount of work, translation work, to a devastating fire. They didn't have, you know, computers back then. He said about the fire, in one short evening, the labor of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. I had lately brought something to the utmost perfection of which they seemed capable and contemplated the missionary establishment with perhaps too much self-congratulation. The Lord has laid me low that I may look more simply to him. It wasn't all gravy. He believed the text. He believed Isaiah 54 too. Do we? We have a missionary, and we have missionaries that we support, but we're sending a team to Honduras, and we're struggling to get people, and we haven't done a great job of communicating it, but Matt and Ellen want us to come. They're, they're, they're reaching these different pastors. They need help building this facility, and they're saying, please come. And I hope our response is, well, he'll do it with somebody else or without their aid or mine. But we need some more Isaiah 54 too. Enlarge your tents. And we need to pray that, Lord, send me. Who, who, who can he send among us to go? We are privileged to have this responsibility given to us of the gospel. And William Carey was a great example. And he was convinced by two texts, Isaiah 54, 2, and John 10, 16. In John 10, 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And the other sheep 
was the Gentiles. And he uses us to reach them. I think it's easy for missions to wane in the church because we tend to focus more and more on, our, on ourselves. But as God delivers us from our fears and he delivers us from our shame and he causes us to sing and to cry out, it's only natural that we begin to open up our mouths and start to want to tell people about the gospel and to say, Lord, where do you, you want to send me? Where are you going to use me? Start here and, and blossom where you're planted but the Lord may call some of you to go overseas. He may call you cross-culturally. I hope that we as a church get to see that and get behind you. But let's believe what God is doing. He's making worshipers for himself from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Has he made you a worshiper? Let's pray. Lord, remind us afresh as we come to your table that you have done it, that it is finished, that we would come without money, with empty hands, receiving your grace afresh and reminded of your incredible covenant of peace. Let these truths sink deep into our souls and may we rejoice with singing and telling others the good news. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.